Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 207. It's titled, How Do the Mega Rich Invest? I got an email last week from Gabe. He's a new listener to the show. And, well, here's what he writes. I just started listening to Money for the Rest of Us. I found it very enlightening and educational, and I plan to leave a review on Apple Podcasts soon. After listening to about a dozen episodes, I have a few questions I hoped you could answer, or perhaps do a podcast on. I've scanned through the complete list of episodes and didn't see any names that seem like they would answer the following. So he sent me three questions, two of which I'll probably do an episode on. They're very, very perceptive questions, but here's Here's the first. Well, the third, I I just gave him the answer because it wasn't enough for a full episode. He asked, why would a company go public in terms of the stock market as opposed to staying private? But here's the question I want to cover today. It says, he writes, how do the mega rich, like the Trump family, for instance, make money through investments? Do they invest in the same ways middle class people do? The kind of ways you discuss on your podcast? Or do they make and hold their money in other ways? I wonder whether they try to make the same rate of return as middle class people do. I also tend to think of very rich people as becoming exponentially richer, not by doing more work per se, but by allocating their money in certain ways. Is that inaccurate? So I I wrote Gabe back, and just to get sort of more context of a situation, and what was so fascinating about it is I get emails all the time, and I don't, I just, they're just, they're an email address and a name. I, I don't really know who it is. And well, it turns out Gabe actually edited my articles that I would write for a local newspaper, and he knows my kids. In fact, I, I think I've met him before he's in his 20s, and he has, has some savings he wanted to invest, and that got him listening to my podcast. So we want to look at how the mega rich invest, and maybe there's something that we can learn by their investment approach. Now, this is not easy information to get, and I I don't know any billionaires. I, I met Sam Zell once. He spoke at a, a client conference of ours, and I once, around 2005, was invited to the family office of a billionaire. They were looking to hire some investment advisors. I have no idea how they got my name. And I was a little nervous. I I was an institutional advisor. I didn't didn't know many rich people growing up, certainly no billionaires. The richest person I knew was my Uncle Bob. And I, I, in fact, when LaPrell and I were down in Florida, we... We went and we met with my Uncle Bob. I had lunch with him. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. He was down in Naples. And growing up, I thought he was rich. He had a BMW. He owned a gas station. And he had his own office building. He had rental properties. And as a, as a, a young kid, I didn't really, I didn't really know. But I, so I, we had lunch with him and I asked him, how did he get to be where he's at? 
Turns out he started buying rental real estate because he didn't like working indoors. He was working for GE aircraft and had some cubicle down in the depths of, of the workplace. Couldn't even see outside the window. So he wanted to find a job he could work outside. And he mentioned in the 60s, there's a lot of money to be borrowed. And he, he bought a property and he bought another one. I asked him about the gas station because in, in my eyes, that was a sign of wealth. You own a car and a gas station? Turns out he had bought a gas station because he was going to tear it down and move his office to them, build a new office building. But the city of Cincinnati told him in order to put that new office building in, he would have to run a new sewer line all the way down Central Parkway in, in Cincinnati, and it would cost him more than really cost to build the building. So he said, so he opened up the gas station and started selling gas until he eventually could get it sold. But think about it, in your mind, growing up, I mean, what was rich? We don't even knew how much money that was. In terms of billionaires in the U.S., Forbes reports that there are 585 billionaires. In China, there's 373, and they identify 2,200 billionaires in 72 countries. In 2005, I was invited to go to, uh, to the family office. This was in L.A. of a billionaire. I don't even remember his, his name. I'm not even sure they gave me his name. But one of the members of the family office wanted to meet with me because they were looking to hire some outside advisors. Somebody that could bring a unique perspective and unique ideas. I was completely out of my element. I, I was an institutional advisor. Yeah, I, well, I advised on a billion-dollar portfolio, but it was an institution. And, I, and I, in my mind, I thought, well, the rich, the billionaires, they must have some secret to how they invest. Maybe it's different. And I think that gets to Gabe's question. Are they doing something different? Than the rest of us? The billionaire didn't hire me, so I never found out who it was. So I started looking, and, and, and you recognize that of the billionaires, there's obviously different ways to go about it. But the best source I could find was from KKR. They're a global investment firm. They manage multiple as I say, alternative asset classes. So they have private equity, energy, infrastructure, real estate, and they have a number of ultra high net worth clients. And typically when we think of ultra high net worth, we're thinking 30 million or more in assets. And they interviewed some of their ultra high net worth clients. And and the average net worth was well over a billion dollars. And they wanted to see how they invest, what's their asset allocation, what's their approach. And one of the things they found out is, is that most have a family office structure, just like I was being interviewed by this family office of this billionaire in, in L.A. And by family office, it means they have a professional management. There's usually, usually a chief 
investment officer. They may and often hire outside advisors, particularly in the alternative investment space, or they might invest with venture capital funds, leverage buyout funds, hedge funds. Sometimes they might do direct investing. Depends on their expertise, but it, it's not that different than what an institutional endowment would invest in, in terms of the approach, sort of professional management making allocation choices. We'll look in a few minutes at some of the differences between an endowment. But there isn't, there isn't this grand secret. There isn't this formula that somehow the mega-rich are generating 20% annualized, for example. It's just as hard for them to, to invest as it is for us. Now, we're going to see some, some differences. This KKR study has some graphs, and I'll, I'll link to the study in the show notes. There's a member of my free insider's guide. You will have already gotten those links along with the, the article that I write or essay I write for that particular week, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. But they show the allocation between ultra-high net worth, uh, pensions, and traditional high net worth. And the biggest difference is, well, the similarities is domestic equity. So domestic stocks, ultra-high net worth, about 20%. Pensions are about 20% in domestic stocks. High net worth individuals have about 28%. So kind of 20 to 28%. Another difference, though, is the overall equity allocation for ultra-high net worth individuals is going to be lower because they only have 9% in international stocks, only about 29% total in stocks. Pension plans have 20% domestic, 26% in international equities, so about 50, 46% actually in total stock allocation. And the high net worth has around 43%. So the ultra, the ultra high net worth, the billionaires, because as they said, as they were doing this study, they interviewed over 50 of their clients. Average, average portfolio was a billion dollars. And so they have less in stocks. Now, what we're not going to talk about in this episode, but will in an upcoming episode in the near term, is this whole conversation of having domestic, if you're a U.S.-based investor, how much do you have in U.S. stocks versus non-U.S.? It's interesting that the ultra-high net worth, they, they overweight the domestic stock market. Whereas a pension plan will have more in the, the non-U.S. stock market. And, and that's something we're going to look at in a different episode. So ultra-high net worth has much less in stocks, much less in bonds, it turns out, also. Only 15% in bonds for fixed income versus 28% for pension plans and 33% in high net worth. So less stocks, less bonds. What makes up the difference? Well. Ultra-high net worth have 46% in what are classified as alternative investments. So this would include venture capital, can include private real estate, 
can include leveraged buyout funds. It could be energy investments. It would include hedge funds. And and they have 46% there versus 24% in pensions for pensions and 22% in, for high net worth individual. So significantly more there. They're significantly less liquid. They're taking advantage of what is known as the illiquidity premium. If we break it down and look exactly how that's allocated, their alternatives of that 46%, about half is in private equity. So leveraged buyout funds, venture capital, would it primarily be in, in fund structures, but they would also potentially do co-investments or even direct investments. About 25% in hedge funds and 23% real assets. That would be real estate, timber, energy. And so that, that they're taking more of an allocation to alternative investments because it's patient capital and we can learn some patience from them. The other thing that is different is they have more in cash. They have about 10% in cash versus 3% in pensions and 2% for high net worth individuals. So so they're illiquid in terms of 46% in the alternative investment space, but then they complement that by having more cash. Now, before we go into more detail on how the mega rich invest, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david, netsuite.com david. The KKR study did uh, the initial survey, then they did some follow-up questions or interviews. And, and here's what they said. In recent years, ultra-high net worth investors, including family offices in our survey, have been earning strong returns, harnessing three structural themes to their benefit. Now, this survey was done in early 2017. They've not released their 2018 survey yet. They go on, first, ultra high net worth clients were often early to embrace capital dislocation, more aggressively deploying capital than many folks during periodic shocks like the Chinese currency devaluation, the threat of a Greek default, and the U.S. downgrade. 
So more aggressively investing capital. To me, that suggests they were they were moving more, let's say, into stocks when there were some of the, this dislocation. They go on. Second, the CIOs for our at ultra high net worth clients we interviewed were early to take advantage of a shifting landscape in the banking system, deploying billions of dollars into areas such as private credit and asset-based lending when traditional financial intermediaries backed away. So they they went into essentially lending, asset-based lending, so mezzanine debt, debt that's often tied to assets. And, and we, as individuals, have more opportunity to, to participate in that than we did. There are platforms that allow us to, to lend. I have participated on the Peer Street platform. I've participated on Yield Street, making debt investments that is somewhat secured. Now, here's an area where the ultra high net worth have an advantage over us. When you invest in Peer Street or some of the other platforms, these lending platforms, you can invest as little as $1,000. But it's done through what's called a, a payment contingent note. It could be a, a borrower contingent note or a, a mortgage payment contingent note. In other words, the, the platform, let's say Peer Street, has a basically a mortgage that they have issued to the borrower and to the house. Generally, somebody's trying to flip the house. And, and if they don't pay, then they can foreclose on that. But as an investor, our payment only comes through if the borrower pays. That's why it's, 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 it's a payment contingent note. But if the platform would go bankrupt for some reason... It's an unsecured liability. So we don't have access to that collateral of that property. And so when an ultra high net worth individual is doing it, they're going to they're gonna have the secured interest. So we don't have that on some of these platforms. In the case of Yield Street, you do. The deals I've done there, I have a note. It's secured by the property. But again, there it's not... You don't get the level of transparency that you would as a billionaire investor. I don't get to see who exactly is borrowing the money or even where that property is located. So there, there are some definite disadvantages. And as a billionaire, you would, you would be able to get much greater transparency in that regard. So that's the other thing that they've been, take, they've been taking advantage of doing direct lending. Finally, the study says, given the long duration of the ultra high net worth clients' liability and minimal payment commitments, they have taken advantage of the illiquidity premium in areas like private credit and private equity to earn strong absolute returns in recent years. So what do they do? They're opportunistic. They're aware of market conditions. They're taking advantage of, of structural dislocations. And it gives the example of the Greek default, potential Greek default, and, and things of that sort. So they're aware of what's going on. They have flexibility to act quickly if need be. 
They're taking advantage of the illiquidity premium. They're not 100% illiquid or 100% liquid. They, well, 46% in alternative investments. So about half their portfolio is, is illiquid. And, and that's about what I'm at. I'm about 40% to 50% illiquid at any given time. So longer term investments. And so they're patient. Many of these underlying funds that they're invested in would be 10 to 15 year type time horizons. And third, they're willing to hold cash. And, and that doesn't, that doesn't bother them. They have up to 10% cash. And some of the charts actually showed that the, let's see, 20, more than, well, 20%, 56% of the, those that they interviewed had 10% or more in cash. So, in fact, 12% had more than 20% in cash. And looks like another 22% had between 15 and 20% in cash. So they're willing to hold cash, and cash isn't bad. The other day, Jim Rickards, author of the book Currency Wars, was being interviewed on the Investors Podcast, and he said... And I love this analogy. Cash is an at-the-money call option on any asset class in the world. There's optionality there. When you hold cash, you can quickly deploy it. And the ultra-high net worth investors do that. Now, they, they do make mistakes. The study pointed out that when we look at, we saw that 20 3% or 25% of ultra high net worth was in hedge funds. KKR said, interestingly, during our follow-up conversations, we learned of several examples where high net worth CIOs are either shuttering and or revamping their hedge fund programs. Returns have generally been disappointing, particularly in the long short equity space. Several CEOs feel there is a better risk-adjusted return elsewhere in the markets these days. In fact, I saw a study recently. It was an article in the Financial Times, and it, it was referring to a study by a firm, an investment consultant in Toronto. It's called CEM Benchmarking. And what they did is they looked at the hedge fund returns reported by 100 and 50 large institutional investors. And then they took those returns and they matched them to blended benchmarks that fit the risk profile. So they looked at the return series. They could see how volatile it was. They then matched it to equity and stock benchmarks that would have essentially replicated that volatility. And they found from between 2000 and 2016 the hedge funds underperformed that simple benchmark by about 1.3% annually. Alexander Beeth, who is a senior analyst at CEM, says, he was quoted as saying, it is hard to justify the typical fees charged by the funds. They're, they're charging 2%, oftentimes 1% to 2% plus 20% of the profits. And they're not, hedge funds as a group, at least in this study, are not delivering the returns. 
they, in fact, they found that even in the downturn of 2008, the hedge funds underperformed by six percentage points after fees. So they didn't even protect in the downturn. And I'm seeing that anecdotally when it comes to hedge funds. And so it's hard to run a hedge fund. And it, it's hard in this environment. There just aren't that many opportunities. The best hedge fund I know that I have the most direct experience with is Seth Klarman's Bowpost Group. And last year, he did mid-single digits. So 2017, 2016, he did high single digits. Now, long-term, he's done reportedly over 16% annualized. And I saw that type of return because I had a client invested with them. But not every year. And, and it, it certainly takes some patience. But as a rule, hedge funds, because of the fees and because the skill isn't always there, particularly if you're trying to deploy it into a, if you have a billion dollars, it's challenging to do. And, and you're seeing, at least in the ultra high net worth space, certainly in the pension space, they're rethinking these hedge fund allocations. So Gabe had asked whether the ultra, the mega rich, try to make the same rate of return as the middle class. And he says he, he, he thinks of the very rich becoming exponentially richer, not by doing so much more work, but how they allocate their assets. I, I believe that in terms of the returns they're generating, particularly going forward, it'll be similar to everyone else. And in terms of, it's not like they, they have this magic way of making money. Now, they benefit from compounding. If you're not spending it, even if you're in 5% on a billion dollars, what is that? that? That's $50 million each year in additional wealth. And so, yeah, they're getting exponentially richer because they're not spending it. And even if they're earning mid to, to high single digits, it's that compounding effect. But it, it's difficult. I mean, we saw just a couple episodes ago, the average college endowment earned 4.6% annualized for the 10 years ending June 2017. That, that's just what the market gave. Despite all the efforts of very diligent board members, investment consultants, and advisors, I don't see billionaires outperforming dramatically college endowments or other foundations because it's all come when you get a billion dollars, it comes down to asset allocation because you have to deploy it. And, and certainly you have some advantage. You, certainly, you get more transparency in terms of what you're investing. But as individuals, we can be opportunistic in terms of how we're allocating, we can be aware. We can use cash in terms of optionality to take advantage of, of what's going on. We can focus on not panicking in, in terms of and not following the crowds. Now, as you, it, It's more difficult to take advantage of the illiquidity premium because some of some of these platforms, you have to meet certain income or net worth thresholds, but it's easier than it used to be, much more access than it used to be. 
But we can also invest outside of the, the public markets in if there's individual real estate deals that might come along. Maybe it, it just it does take time. It takes work. LaPearl and I were in Palm Beach a month or so ago in Florida where there are a number of billionaires that live there where Trump had, President Trump has his Mar-a-Lago Resort. Drove by, we walked around on Worth Street. We weren't, we weren't staying in Palm Beach, couldn't afford that. And, and I saw a couple going out to dinner or they were driving around or being, I guess, chauffeured around in the Rolls Royce. And I thought, I'm so glad I'm not mega rich. It just, it felt stifling. It did. I guess you, you get used to being who you are. And, and so while we can invest like the mega rich, we don't have to live like the mega rich. It just seems like it would be really, be stifling. It's kind of a burden. Maybe, well, but I've, I've never been mega rich. So maybe, maybe I'm missing something. But we certainly can invest in them. We can take it, we can learn some things from how they invest, but I don't think they invest in a way that's magically different than the rest of us. They certainly get perhaps greater transparencies. They can negotiate lower fees. But at the end of the day, they have to allocate their capital based on the opportunities that are out there in a world where interest rates are low Then they've done more direct lending where they can get higher rates, but, but not significantly higher returns than an endowment or even us as individuals if we are aware and, and prudent investors and aren't just trying to follow the crowd, that we're willing to be flexible. So that is episode 207. Show notes, as I mentioned, are at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.